Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. I always like to tell my students at school that um, I'm a man that likes to get started on time because then we finish on time, right? And they, they always appreciate that. Uh, and then if they're lucky, maybe I'll finish a little early, depending on how fast I talk. And of course, that's contingent on how much coffee I had. Um, uh, so uh, uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you who know me or for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Reams uh, and I participate here uh, in, the, in the music ministry uh, and I have the, the pleasure and the honor of, um, of teaching every so often. And uh, in most of my professional life, I teach music or music history or music theory. So it's such a, an honor to have an opportunity to teach from uh, the Word of God. Um, and... So t today is Judges 7, and 1 through 23-ish. Um, and if, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles, because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Some of the details as we go through this passage is very interesting. Now, uh, just a few words of introduction. Before we look over this exciting scene from the book of Judges, and Judges 7 is, this is a very exciting scene. I want to kind of uh, fly us back up in the air, as it were, to get a larger look at the landscape to remind us of how chapter 7 fits into this book. Uh, this reminder or overview is as much for me as it is for you, because we've had a couple weeks off. Um, so a, a couple quick things about the book of Judges. Uh, one, Judges is interesting in that uh, not only do we think about Judges as a book, but we think about it as a time period, right? Very often, obviously, we refer to the book of Judges, but also very often we refer to the time of the Judges. Uh, the period began after the death of Joshua in the early 14th century B.C., uh, Joshua 24, 29, uh, and continued until Saul was crowned king of Israel by the prophet Samuel in roughly 1051 B.C., uh, as you can see in 1 Samuel 10:24. So the book of Judges acts as a kind of sequel to the book of Joshua. Judges is important for us to look at uh, for a variety of reasons. It was a time that saw great apostasy in Israel. The pattern of behavior in the book of Judges is, is frankly pretty clear, right? The people rebelled uh, through idolatry and disbelief. God brought judgment through foreign oppression. God raised up a deliverer or judge. And then the people repented and turned back to God. Then, rinse and repeat, right? It just is a, a, a pattern that repeated itself. We meet many faithful characters in the book of uh, Judges, such as Othniel, Gideon, Samson, Shamgar, Deborah, uh, Ehud. Uh, and these individuals are all flawed, right? Uh, but the Lord is pleased to use them to deliver the Israelites, sometimes in very dramatic ways, as we'll see today. Uh, one pattern to note from Judges, by the way, is that God will not allow sin to go unpunished. He disciplines His people, such as in this book, for following other gods, disobeying His sacrificial laws, engaging in blatant immorality, uh, and sometimes descending into absolute anarchy. Yet, God heard their cries for mercy and raised up leaders to deliver them. However, as we know, that even these leaders were not sufficient ultimately to change the nation's direction. Chapter 7 is about a great victory. 
And this is a great victory achieved by a great manly hero and his vast unbeatable army. Is that right? That's not right, is it? Uh, so uh, let's take a look. Gideon himself, he lived in relative obscurity and was, uh, uh, as we would consider, he had a, a lack of status. Uh, he lived in fear of his family, of townspeople. Uh, he was in constant need for additional assurance and encouragement. I think we can all relate to that uh, at some level. Uh, he had a fear of battle, and his troops were weary and unsupported by fellow Israelites. So already it's not looking good, right? So when we think of Gideon and his army, especially in the chapter today, are we looking at weakness or are we looking at strength? Now, as we find this out, I want to remember, I want us to remember what the Bible says about weakness. Uh, and forgive me, I'm going to have to put on my old man glasses for this part. Uh, and listen, listen closely. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we, for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And finally, 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Uh, so uh, as you turn to uh, Judges 7, uh, as we read through the chapter, I want you to see that there are basically three main acts or three main events. Uh, first, God's winnowing down of the army. God speaking an encouraging word to Gideon through someone else's dream, and then God delivering victory to his people. Uh, so before we read through this together, uh, let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful yet little bit chilly morning to come here uh, and worship you uh, and to be able to read your word and to speak about your word. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that you will apply uh, principles uh, that you have for us to learn this morning uh, and press them to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, this is uh, Judges 7. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, 
And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah as far as the border of abel Mahola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And I'm going to finish 24 and 25 for context. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. 
Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And thus ends the, the reading of God's word. So as I mentioned, this breaks up naturally into three acts, uh, as it were, um, uh, to, to, this, to this very dramatic chapter. Uh, so the first part of it I want to look at is trusting in God's providence, not our strength. Uh, and this is in verses 1 through 8. And again, I encourage you to have that in front of you because I'll uh, uh, refer to it quite a bit. Um, I just want to make this point first. Judges is not the first go-to scripture for many of us when we are looking for scripture to, to turn to in times of need. All right? We agree with that? However, I found this quote by a 19th century Presbyterian minister that encouraged me um, as I was working through this. And this is just a beautiful quote. Uh, and I quote, the lessons of this, he was actually preaching a sermon on this passage. And this was his quote. He said, the lessons of this subject are very spirited and impressive. The seemingly valueless lump of quartz has the pure gold in it. The smallest dewdrop on the meadow at night has a star sleeping in its bosom, and the most insignificant passage, seemingly, of Scripture has in it a shining truth. These guys are pretty good at metaphor, weren't they? Um, so what we're going to do today is see what this lump of quartz has for us. Um, so it's said by military strategists that most that you can be outnumbered, statistically, right, most that you can be outnumbered in war and win, uh, is roughly, and you'll have to forgive me here, is, it, was, it was either like 2.3 to 1 or 3 point something to 1. The, the class I took on this was about 30 years ago. But it's something to that, to that effect. Um, the, the ratio for individual battles is roughly the same, but can have a little more variance, obviously. Uh, it's kind of the concept that on any given day, anyone can win. Uh, recently, my family and I watched a movie called Miracle, and it was about the 1980 uh, Olympic, U.S. Olympic hockey team that had one of the biggest upsets in sports history over the then Soviet Union, right? We had a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old college kids playing against 20, 30-year-old professionals in the Soviet Union um, who had been playing together as a team for 10 or 15 years. Um, and so what the coach said to his team just before the game, as they're sitting in the locker room trembling, knowing what they're in for, he made this comment. He said, you know, we could play this team ten times and lose nine of them, but tonight is not one of them. And so it's that same concept. You know, and there are a few examples through history when armies have beat those odds in war, most famously in the Revolution. There are many more examples when armies have uh, beat those odds by a lot in battle. Some of these include uh, victories by armies outnumbered by the following odds. And uh, forgive me, I had to look this up and write it down. Um, okay, outnumbered five to one, a depleted English army led by Henry V uh, won. Uh, there was another five to one in the Battle of Kapyong in the Korean War. Uh, there was an eight to one win in the War of 1812. There was a 16 to one. There was another where uh, uh, army was outnumbered 22 to one, uh, and that was also in the, uh, the War of 1812. There was a 23 to one in the Budokan Revolt, uh, and the biggest one I could find was 500 to one. Uh, but to be honest, this should be considered as an outlier and not really possible. Uh, but if you're curious and want to look up a fun story, this is the capture of Belgrade in World War II uh, by Fritz Klingenberg along with six men. Um, 
So history shows us that this can happen for several reasons. How is it that a much smaller army can outfight a much larger army? And we have some reasons for that. First, the larger force is called unexpectedly. Second, complacency by the larger force. Either they're caught drunk or asleep or both. Either by luck or skill, the smaller force kills the leader and forces a breakdown in the chain of command. Subterfuge. This is what led to the capture of Belgrade, as you can, as you can imagine. Advantage in defenses or topographical features. In some cases, the smaller force was just simply better trained uh, or had better morale. And, of course, a combination of the above. Now, as believers in Christ, we understand that, that ultimately all of this happens for one reason, don't we? Because of God's providence. So Gideon, at the beginning of this chapter, has, and, and remember numbers. This, I know numbers are always not easy to remember, but remember, try to remember these in context. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Gideon has 32,000 men, and he is still outnumbered four to one. So we're looking at roughly 120 plus thousand men that he's, that he's up against. So um, God tells Gideon that he has too few men, right? No, he says that you have too many men. Now remember, Gideon tested God earlier, so now God's going to return the favor, right? So once reduced to 300, he is now outnumbered 400 to 1. Now the 22,000, uh, you, you might think that the 22,000 men that, that left willingly would probably have not fought terribly well, right, if they were that anxious to flee the scene and go back home. Uh, but you might think, well, it'd be better than nothing to have these men. But as one commentator put it, and I quote, and listen carefully, God does not need the tremblers or those only interested in their personal comfort or safety. He needs those willing and able to fight the enemy. So then we get to the really unusual part when we make the final reduction from 10,000 to 300. The water test in verses 5 and 6 seem to uh, some expositors to have simply been, oh, this is a way to test the men that are lazy versus the men that are not lazy. Or uh, maybe this is a way to test uh, who is more prone to fighting efficiency over civilian ease. Uh, but probably too much, frankly, is read into this because it's not in the text. But all we do know is this was God's means of winnowing it down further. Now we think about how Gideon must have felt. Uh, if, he, if he needed the fleece with 32,000 men, what now? But God, in his mercy, did not leave Gideon without an explanation. If you look back at verse 2, we see the real enemy is pride, not Midian. That, after all, is the problem uh, we all face, isn't it? Pride. We want to be in charge and get credit for it. In academic institutions, businesses, churches, we want to be in charge of what we've not been given charge over. We want to be in control, in some cases, over who God is. And of course, this is one step away from idolatry, and this was the problem Israel faced over and over again. If you look at the verbs in verse 7, they're important. I will save, I will deliver. The point is often made in the Old Testament that mere numbers are no guarantee of success. What is it? It's the presence of the Lord that brings victory. And He is able to work through a handful, and remember this, He's able to work through a handful of dedicated people. Does everybody believe that? Amen. So what's the parallel here uh, today? 
we feel outnumbered, particularly in today's society. Uh, and ha somebody that works in academia, I can, I can tell you for sure, we're outnumbered and we're outgunned, all right? We are. And sometimes that's the case not only outside the church, but that's the case inside the church. Uh, Thomas DeWitt Talmadge, uh, he's actually, he's a 19th century Presbyterian minister, the one that I quoted earlier. In um, preaching a sermon on this passage, he said the following, and I quote, A small part of the army of God will have to do all the hard fighting. Take a membership of a thousand, and you'll find 50 do most of the work. Take a membership of 500 and you see that the 10 people do the work. There are scores of churches where two or three people do all the work. And he continues, do not worry, Christian, if you have to do more than your share of the work. You had better thank God that he has called you to be one of the picked men rather than to belong to the host of stragglers. Sometimes God has to reduce our army or he has to reduce our strength, our resources to get our attention and remind us that he is God and we are not. Remember, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Jesus tells his disciples, without me, you can do nothing, right? Um, and that's actually in John 15.5. Uh, uh, his strength is made perfect in our weakness in 2 Corinthians 12.9 for those taking notes. This should put us on our knees, frankly, um, in thanksgiving and in prayer uh, to discern uh, what God's calling is for us, all right? Discernment over uh, who we are called to be. But secondly, I'm going to look at verses, verses uh, 9 through 15, and we can see uh, trusting in God's Word. You know, it's interesting, by the way, in God's providence, that despite the vastly outnumbered uh, army, the larger army is still keeping watch. Uh, and regarding this dream that the two men overheard, because without that watch, they wouldn't have been able to hear this dream, uh, dreams are considered of great importance in the ancient world. Uh, every dream was believed to be capable of interpretation. So in this case, it's generally believed that the cake of bread in verse 13 uh, represented the poor farmer of Israel whose staple was barley, while the tent was the symbol of a, uh, for a nomadic community, uh, in this case, the Midianites. Uh, if you look in verse 14, we see that the meaning of the dream is evident to the second soldier. Now, Gideon saw this as an encouraging sign and assurance of victory. So what did he do? He worshipped in verse 15. He then went and spread the word of his conviction of complete triumph. Let's say that again. He went and spread the word of his conviction of complete triumph. This sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? The strategy by which God will win the battle against the Midianites is not as fascinating as the strategy by which he is teaching Gideon lessons of faith. And this is not a private lesson. This is not an independent study. It's meant for all of us to learn from this. And the good news is we don't even have to pay tuition. At the core of this is that God came to speak to Gideon. And listen here. To move from fear, doubt, or even apathy to faith will often, if not always, begin with a word from God. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Isn't that beautiful? That's 2 Peter 1.19. God gives us commands and promises. Remember that. God gives us commands and promises, just like He gives here to Gideon. Arise, go down against the camp, is the command. And the promise is, for I have delivered it into your hand. As we get older, we become, well, we may become more jaded and doubting of certain things, particularly now that we live in an age that puts so much emphasis on seeing as believing. We all occasionally struggle with practical unbelief that can only be overcome by what? By faith, which can only be gained through the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. How else will we make progress? I can't think of any. So how did God lead Gideon forward? Gideon needed his doubts to be removed. Now, Gideon, look at the numbers, all right? Look at the, remember these numbers. He had 300. We're looking versus over 120,000. Gideon seemed to have reasonable doubts, didn't he? Well, see, that's the problem. We often measure what God can do up against our own reasoning and our experience. So we end up limiting God in our mind. So, of course, that will produce doubt and fear. No matter what we fear or don't fear, no matter what we doubt or don't doubt, God's hidden providence is continually working out His sovereign will all the time. It was God who gave Midianite the dream. It was God who put Gideon close to this conversation. It was God who protected Gideon and Pura from being seen or captured. God used the enemy to encourage the reluctant Gideon. Now, signs like this will not happen every day, though right? But you know what? They don't need to. If we require proof of future victory now, then we are disregarding the entire concept of faith. Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance, or the King James says substance. I like that. It's something you can hold in your hand. All right? Faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for. The conviction, or KJV says evidence, of things not seen. We have God's Word to us, so pray for the faith and wisdom that it can bring to you. Remember from a study way back from James, where we're told that we should pray daily for wisdom, and the Lord will do what? He'll give it in abundance. But finally, we look at uh, verses 16 uh, to the end, or mostly through 22. Trusting in God's power. Before we get into battle, let's take a quick look at the courage and faith required by these men. How many of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Uh, there, for those of you who enjoy reading uh, biographies, uh, there was one written oh, a little over a decade ago by Eric Metaxas. Um, he's, he's Catholic, but he, he can write a biography. It's a beautiful biography. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who knew about courage and faith. Um, and I want to read to you a quote from a sermon that he gave from this passage, from Judges 7. And I want you to remember about, I want you to remember what Bonhoeffer was fighting against. All right? 
Um, he, was, he was living in a country where the Nazis, of course, were wanting to replace the one true God with themselves. Uh, they wanted to come into the churches and completely change it. They wanted to replace uh, the cross with Nazi icons. All right, I think they wanted to replace the Bible with Mein Kampf. Was that? I think I think that's something that happened at one point too. So they came in and wanted to essentially Nazify uh, the church because who did the Nazis think that you should worship? Hitler, right? Um, so I want you to remember that as, and by the way, as a point of reference, a lot of churches were dropping like flies to this type of social pressure. A lot of pastors were dropping like flies. Uh, and as, one, as I heard one person put it, they folded like origami um, under the pressure of uh, the Nazi regime. Right? You kind of see some of that going on today, don't you, in churches? folding to the pressure of society. Oh no, somebody might dislike me. Oh no, somebody might persecute me in one way or the other. Uh, so this is, this is a quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the church, we have only one altar, and that is the altar of the Most High, the only one, the Lord to whom alone is due honor and adoration, the Creator before whom all creatures must kneel, before whom the most powerful is nothing but dust. We have no auxiliary altars for the, for the adoration of men. The worship of God, not of man, happens here at the altar of the church. Anyone who wants anything else may stay away. He cannot stay with us in God's house. Anyone who requires an altar for himself, think of who he's thinking of, anyone who requires an altar for himself or who wants to build one for another man, mocks God, and God is not mocked. And then he continues, To be in the church means to have courage. To be alone with the Lord does not mean to be man's servant, but to be God's servant. That takes courage. The greatest obstacle which prevents man from allowing God to be Lord, that is, from believing, is our cowardice. Therefore, look at Gideon because he joins us in falling down before the only altar of the Most High and Almighty, and he bows to him alone. So uh, moving forward real briefly to the battle itself. Breaking up into three companies, and you'll see in your passage where he breaks it up into three companies. That's not very unusual, right? It's not a very unusual strategy in the Old Testament. Uh, you see it in 1 Samuel 11. You see it in 2 Samuel 18. However, the equipment for battle used in this passage uh, is, uh, is a first. You might wonder how, as a two-armed, at best, right, let's be honest, as, as a soldier in those days with both arms, uh, how as a two-armed soldier you're supposed to take a flaming torch, a, picture, a pitcher to conceal the light of the torch, and a trumpet into battle. Well, the trumpet referred to here is not like the one uh, that my son Michael uh, plays in uh, Lisa's, my wife's homeschool band. Um, it would have more likely been an instrument made of the horns of rams or cattle, and then it would have been hung around the neck. This way, the hopefully two hands of the, of the men could hold the torch and pitcher while the trumpet hung around the neck. And then when it was time to blow the trumpet, you would temporarily hold the other two items in one hand. 
This sound perhaps this sounds perhaps a little complicated to try to uh, explain to all the men, but notice in verse 17 and 18 what it says. It says that the Israelites were to imitate Gideon's action. You know, kind of a hey y'all, watch this. The noise made by the cracking of the pottery and the blowing of the trumpets would have caused a great deal of confusion among the Midianites. Think of this. The general order was to first blow a loud concerted blast on the trumpet. And don't don't confuse this with like the Haydn trumpet concerto. This would have been a loud, harsh noise um, meant to scare and confuse you. Followed by the shattering of 300 pitchers and then a thunderous battle cry. As a side note, uh, this is a little disconcerting as we saw before. Look at what they yell in verse 20. Uh, They yell for Yahweh, right? Uh, and for Gideon. Uh, So as a reminder, let's not uh, try too hard to take glory for ourselves. Anyway, then more trumpet blasts, and then more battle cries, and it probably went back and forth. In addition to the loud noises, the 300 waving torches would have created the impression, especially to an already surprised and panicked army, that there was a great host attacking them. In this action, there would have likely been uh, men waking from deep sleep, You'd have had uh, stampeding camels. Uh, Bleary-eyed soldiers would have started lashing out everything that moved in the dark, not knowing who was friend or foe. It would have been chaos. Uh, This type of ruse, by the way, in surprise attack is not uncommon in military history. One example of this that hits close to home, literally for us, was an incident that happened just a few miles west of Rome in the Civil War. And despite what some of my students think, I was not, in fact, around for that. So this is an event that happened in 1863, April of 1863. So guess what? We're approaching the 160th anniversary of this. Union Army Colonel Abel Strait and his men were raiding from Tennessee into northern Alabama and into Georgia towards Rome. Uh, The raid was poorly supplied and planned. There was a really funny incident in Nashville that had to do with donkeys, out-of-control donkeys, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have to skip that. Um, uh, but it ended with the defeat of, of Strait and his 1,700 men at Cedar Bluff, Alabama by one Nathan Bedford Forrest and his 500 men who bluffed their way into forcing a surrender just west of Rome. So for those keeping score, by the way, that means Forrest was outnumbered 3.4 to 1. Forrest spread, here's what he did, Forrest spread his men around in the woods, right? He knew the area. Here's an advantage because of topography. He knew the area, um, and he spread his men around in the woods to make it seem like he had far more men than Colonel Strait. And some accounts state, by the way, that they had torches just to kind of enhance the effect. So couriers from these non-existent Confederate units rode up to to the Union line with the reports, and Strait took the bait and agreed to surrender. When the Confederates finally emerged to gather the Yankee weaponry, uh, the Union colonel realized that he had been had uh, by the crafty forest. So after surrendering, surrendering and being informed of the deception, uh, Strait reputedly demanded his arms back for a proper fight, uh, which Forrest uh, 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 cheerfully declined that request, by the way. Um, Union losses were only 12 killed, 69 wounded, but close to 1,500 were captured. Uh, And real quick, by the way, the rest of the story. Uh, This unsuccessful raid was coordinated with the more famous Grierson's Raid, uh, which is partially a feint to confuse the Confederate forces. Um, So, of course, we know ultimately Rome gets taken. But for a short time, Nathan Bedford Forrest was a hero to Rome and accomplished it by using a ruse very similar to what we see in this passage. Um, An example of a surprise attack, of course. 
is Stonewall Jackson's uh, surprise uh, flank attack at Chancellorsville or George Washington's surprise attack at Trenton. And by the way, we know, we know this from their writings, particularly Stonewall, that these men were very aware uh, of not only battle strategies from the Old Testament, but they were also very aware of whom to cry out in prayer. So our passage, our passage says the Midianites ran, cried out, then fled. Not a good look for them. Uh, you see in verse 22 where they fled, uh, and this was a natural line of flight for the Midianites as they fled eastward down the valley uh, over the Jordan into the region from which they had attacked Israel. Um, and my, uh, my uh, portion of this chapter here actually comes to an end, and uh, Joe Fowler will take over next week. Uh, I cheated a little and went into it. Sorry, Joe. Um, but I, I do want to make just um, a couple points, all right, as we read through this. It's an exciting, you know, it's an exciting battle. It's an exciting scene. But what are some points to take from this chapter, right? Um, first of all, memory is a gift. The Israelites didn't remember the miraculous events that brought them to their land or the covenant that God made to them. But God did not forget. Have you forgotten the great works that God's done in your life or even in the life of this church? Pastor David uh, recently in a sermon uh, uh, had some beautiful words to say about that. We also see that discipline is a sign of love. Uh, and I want to briefly read through Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. You don't have to turn to it. But you can just listen very carefully. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, and listen closely to this verse, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit. Discipline, right? It, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we trust and obey, all right? For there's no other way. But also we remember this, uh, we remember this most unusual part where the army is outnumbered vastly and then is reduced uh, a lot more. But not by might nor my power, but by my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6. Exodus 14.13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This reduction, by the way, in forces illustrates this fact that God's work is accomplished by His Spirit, not by my strength. 
In fact, as in this case, God works in our weaknesses. This seems very counterintuitive to the world, but God works in ways to do what? To show his own glory. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing, isn't it? It is good for us that he does it this way. And why is that? Let's look at it this way. If people were saved, and let's put it in context of the church. If people were saved because of my strength, or the cleverness of my teaching, or the cleverness of preaching, then we would be all too quick to take credit and to honor ourselves. We see this happen all through history. We see it happen now. That would be dangerous. But God is gracious and kind to use us as a means for His works, and that should humble us and make us thankful. Ultimately, the cross of Christ is God's instrument, as Joel Beakey puts it, of slaying our fleshly pride. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. On the other hand, as we have just seen, God does use human means to do His work. So, we're amazed that God used such a small army to do what He did, aren't we? You know what we should be more amazed about? That God used an army at all, right? He didn't need one, but He still used one. So we likewise, even in our weakness, should pray to be used as God's instrument or army, as it were, to carry out His purpose. Again, Beaky makes this point, and I quote, God does not use angels to preach His gospel. He uses sinners, redeemed sinners. He does this because it is good for us to be included in His work. So like we saw in this passage with the commands and the promises, we need to obey His command or calling and trust in His promises. God blesses obedience and works through it. Amen? So think of this. What are some ways that He does this in our church or in our own families or in our own lives? And I guarantee you, and I want to encourage you, that this is definitely something worth pondering. Is He doing this through and in my life? Is He doing it in yours? I pray that He will and that uh, through it, he will be glorified. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, we uh, glorify you and, and, and we thank you. We come to you with such thankful hearts that you have revealed to us your word. You've revealed to us, uh, frankly, the bad news of who we are, but the great news of who you are, Lord. Um, and we praise you for the work that you've done for your people. Uh, most most uh, evidently in um, the cross of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you will, by the power of your Spirit, equip us, empower us, and prepare us uh, for the worship service uh, that we have upcoming. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.